let me ask you to reach for a Bible and turn to page 802, if you have one in front of you, page 802, that's Malachi chapter 2, just a chance to welcome you and to congratulate you on fighting through streams and rivers and floods and whatever other dangers uh, assailed you on the way to church this morning, great that you uh, wanted to be here and continue to make the effort to do so. At the same time, let me welcome anyone watching at home who couldn't make it through floods. Uh, you guys are very, uh, we're pleased that you're joining us as well. I'm going to pray as we turn to God's Word. Our Father, we want to um, thank you for your presence with us and the promise of your work among us by your Spirit. We are powerless to know you, we're powerless to please you without your help, and so we pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would give us minds and hearts that can understand and receive your word, and appreciate and esteem your Son, Jesus, as we should, and we pray it in his name, amen. Continuing our journey then through Malachi, we've reached chapter 2 and verse 17, and I'm going to uh, read the, down to chapter 3 and verse 5. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment." I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. I hope you'll keep that open in front of you. There's also an outline of the talk and a neat little table we're going to refer to in a bit. Uh, on this sheet that might be of some use to you. Um, there's an idiom that is a, a good place for us to start this morning, I think. People say, have you heard this, be careful what you wish for. Um, so they, it's used to warn us that if we get what we want, it might come with unforeseen, even unpleasant circumstances. The example in the dictionary is, you want twins. And uh, the answer is, well, be careful what you wish for, because it'll be amazing, twice the fun. And it will also be exhausting and expensive, as one or two here can testify. Uh, the time I remember using it is when someone said to me, uh, maybe you've heard this, if God is so powerful and so just, why doesn't he get rid of all of the evil in the world today? 
Because on the one hand, it's a, a desire we all feel, isn't it? We long for a world, we were just praying, that would be free from injustice and oppression and violence and narcissism, but be careful what you wish for. Because the problem of evil doesn't just lie outside of us in other corrupt people or institutions, but a bit closer to home. The Russian writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn once said, pride grows in the human heart like lard on a pig. Just grows and grows in all of us, slightly more eruditely. He said, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor through classes, nor between political parties, as though there are some countries that have good people in them and some that have bad, some political parties that have good people in them and some have bad. But he said it passes instead through every human heart and through all human hearts, because every one of us is tainted on the inside. And that's why I would need to be careful what I wish for, because if God were to act today to rid the world of all of the evil, he would start with dictators and murderers and pedophiles, I'm sure, and the world would be a better place. But soon, if he was to be thorough, he'd be having to get rid of everyone who's ever stolen something, uh, everyone who's ever told a lie, everyone who's ever said an unkind word to someone they were supposed to love, and before long, we know that we would be next in the firing line. So we do need to be careful what we wish for, especially when we're telling God what he should be doing. But as we reach our passage this morning, a sober passage, we discover that the people of Israel were doing precisely that. Uh, I've given it the, the heading, this first point, a tiresome attitude, uh, because those are God's words. You'll see it in verse 17 of chapter 2. Malachi tells God's own people, you have wearied the Lord with your words. You say, how have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. He delights in them or by asking where is the God of justice. And just in passing, it's striking, isn't it, that God's not presented as some sort of robot. He's not a, a mind in the sky who is impassive and unfeeling. He's Emotion is not just a metaphor for him. God is never ruled by his emotions, but he does feel. Um, Jesus wept at his friend's graveside. The spirit is grieved by his people's sin. The father here is wearied. And alarmingly, his weariness is not directed at the nations who have always ignored him, but rather at his own people. The ones who, in Malachi, are still claiming to serve him and are going along to church and praying and offering their sacrifices, but their heart attitude has been full of resentment and arrogance towards him. These aren't the people who are just discouraged in their faith. There are people who are openly disobedient, uh, dismissive of God and his love and his justice. And now it seems God has had enough is it too strong in verse 17 to say that God is sick and tired of their attitude? That he, he wants them to know that the time of his patience is almost over? Incredibly, they remain oblivious to the depth of their problem. That's been the case all through Malachi, hasn't it? So they ask, well, how have we wearied him? What is his problem? 
And you spot that they're actually accusing God of delighting in evil. I think it's pretty hard to overstate the scandal of that. God is one who delights in goodness, in righteousness. To him, sin and evil are an abomination. It's the, the devil in the Bible who delights in evil. And so here, his own people are, are daring to call God devilish. It's extreme, but I want to suggest that the attitude behind their words is, is a little bit closer to home than we might think. It seems their real beef is that God is not doing what they want him to. Uh, after the exile, God had promised that the nations would be shaken. He would establish his perfect kingdom. He would uh, be present with his people in person to shepherd them and to, to bless them. But God wasn't acting on his promises in the way that they wanted him to or quickly enough for their liking. And so they put two and two together and made 17. They said, if God isn't doing what we want him to do and when we want him to do it, it, it must mean he's not the God of justice after all. He must be a God who delights in evildoers. Um, let me say clearly, I don't think that um, I, I, their attitude is a direct match for ours. At least I hope we're not in the habit of brazenly accusing God of injustice. But the, the mindset that we see here, I think, probably is all around us. And there can be seeds of it, at least, in our own hearts, too. Has anyone ever said to you, um, I can't believe in a God who says that X, whatever it is, is morally wrong. Or I won't believe in a God who allows Y to happen. I wonder if we've ever thought, if God really loved me, he would have given me that by now. If he was really good, he wouldn't have put me through this. What do you think? Is that the, the first step down the road that Israel was traveling? My hunch is it, it probably is. Uh, it comes at the moment when we allow our opinions, we allow about what should be happening, we allow our circumstances to reshape our picture of God. There's a very big step from, Lord, I'm finding this incredibly hard, help me, to this is hard, therefore God is the problem but it's a step that's very easy to take. And it should set one or two alarm bells ringing because God never has to answer to us. It's always the other way around, as we'll see. If I keep walking down a road unchecked where I'm telling God what he should be doing and expecting him to live up to my standards, there would come a point when my attitude would show that I don't really know him at all. And he might even say to us, you've wearied me with your words. It's a tiresome attitude. In reply, God foretells an unsettling arrival, the second major heading on the sheet. To explain why it's unsettling, let me ask you to imagine two workers in a company. Uh, the boss goes away on business for a couple of weeks overseas somewhere. While he's away, one worker is the the model of workplace integrity. She works the same hours she's always done. She puts in the same effort, does all of her work brilliantly. The other does the opposite. He thinks, well, the cat's away, the mice will play. He arrives late, he takes long leave. 
lunches, he leaves early, he binges on Netflix, while in the short hours he spends at his desk. How do those workers, how will those workers feel when the message comes from the boss to say, well, my trip's finished early and uh, I'll be there in an hour to check on your work? Answer, one will feel ready and prepared and one will have a bit of a sinking feeling in their stomach. There's a similar situation in Malachi. The people are saying, where is the God of justice? And in reply, God says, I'm on my way. Are you ready? Verse 1, behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? So there is an irony, because the people think that the problem is that God hasn't showed up, but the real problem will be when he does. One writer says, the greatest danger facing the wicked is the Lord himself. And these verses, as I've hinted, set out the timetable for his coming. My little table shows it's a two-stage process. It's a bit like the, the start of a wedding. You know, the minister says at the front, um, please stand. And so everyone knows that they have to stand up. And the very next thing that happens is that the bride is going to walk down the aisle. So here, God says, well, the messenger is going to come. And he's a bit like the, the, the minister. He's a bit like the warm-up act. He's often called the forerunner by people. And he's going to tell everyone to get ready. And from that moment on, we know that the very next thing that will happen, eyes will be peeled, is because God himself is going to make an appearance. And there's a, a play on words um, here because the, the warm-up act is called My Messenger, which in the original is Malachi. So that tells us that this messenger is going to be another prophet like Malachi, another preacher of repentance. He's going to be a, a voice crying out in the wilderness, urging people to prepare for the coming of the Lord. God um, refers to himself in three ways in verse 1. Again, on the, the table, he's me, he's the Lord. Slightly confusingly, perhaps, he's also the messenger of the covenant. But to stay right, we're going to need to see that the messenger and the messenger of the covenant are two different people. The messenger is the warm-up act, and the messenger of the covenant is God himself. So stand back. See the big picture for a second. The people are saying, where's God? And in reply, he says, I am coming, and you'll know when I'm going to come because my messenger will arrive to announce my coming. And God always keeps his promises. Not one falls to the ground. So no surprise, we get to the New Testament. And this two-stage timetable, messenger and God, is fulfilled perfectly. Uh, references again on the table. First comes the messenger, Matthew 11. Jesus quotes this verse from Malachi and says, John the Baptist is the promised messenger, the warm-up act who prepares the way. And Jesus wants us to do the sums, because what did John spend his whole life doing? He spent his whole life pointing to Jesus. So he said, I must decrease, he must increase. He said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. After me is one greater than me. I baptize with water, he'll baptize with the Spirit. So we're doing the sums. If John is the messenger and the one that he's pointing to is Jesus, then we are being told that Jesus must be God himself. 
Um, forget the technicalities of that for a second. Uh, this is just one of the one of hundreds of ways that the Old Testament predicts not just the, the fact of Jesus coming, but also the manner, the detail of what it would be like. Here's the cash value for us. Have I realized that Jesus is my God? And that as Malachi says, the arrival of God, of Jesus, isn't good news for everybody. Let's move on from the timetable to think about the works that the Lord will do when he appears. And first is purification. Verse 3, God says of himself, behold, he's coming. But who can endure his coming? Who can stand when he appears? He's like the refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they'll bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Uh, the images are clear enough, aren't they? If you have some impure silver, you know that you can, well, you, you and I probably can't, but you know that theoretically it can be heated up, melted, all the bad stuff will gather on the surface. If it's skimmed off, you're then just left with pure silver. Um, Fuller's soap is just the washing powder of the ancient world, just your personal, your fairy non-bio, except this word is used 48 times in the Old Testament for, for ritual purification as well. So it doesn't just make you physically clean, it makes you spiritually clean as well. God then is saying, very obviously, when I come, one of the things that I'm going to do is make the dirty clean by purifying them. It is a promise that is born of amazing patience and grace. Remember, this nation has wearied him with their complaining. They've been faithless. They deserve the fire of his wrath. But God's first instinct is to send a purifying fire instead so that they can be restored to relationship with him because that's the kind of God that he is. He is slow to anger. He is rich in mercy. He loves with an everlasting love. Uh, someone we know used to run a cleaning company in St. Andrews. Uh, and she said the worst time of year uh, was when student lets were coming to an end in the summer. And uh, she had to go in and get the properties ready for the landlord's inspection. And I'm sure that um, your flat, if you're living in one, is a model of cleanliness. But um, she would arrive to discover carpets that were alive with mold and a little family of rodents living in the kitchen and bathrooms that I don't think had seen a, a, any bleach for a long time. Her job was to, to go in and make it all spinky spanky and shiny all over again. Just a, a tiny picture of the purifying work of God. Uh, if God was going to cleanse the people of Israel, he had to start with the priests. They were such a big part of the problem. We've seen that. In chapter 2, God threatened to spread dung on their faces. Now he says, I'll make them as pure as gold and silver. In chapter 1, the nation's offerings were detestable in God's sight. Now the fruit of his purifying work is that they will bring offerings in righteousness and their worship will be pleasing to the Lord. It's a wonderful thing that God is promising them. 
that he will purify. Promised in Malachi, accomplished, as we've been thinking all morning by the Lord Jesus as he died on the cross. Um, the Apostle John tells us how on the night before he died, Jesus rose from supper and uh, he laid aside his outer garments and he, he tied a towel around his waist. And then he poured water into a bowl and he got down on his hands and knees and began to wash his disciples' feet. And when one objected, he said, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. And so that little act symbolized the effect that his death would have on all who trust in him. In the letter to Titus, Paul says, Jesus gave himself for us. We started with this verse, didn't we? To redeem us, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. So where are you and I? Well, left to ourselves, as verse 2 in Malachi puts it, there's no way that we could endure the day of Jesus' coming. There's no way we could stand when he appears. Thankfully, Jesus came the first time, not to condemn, but to purify. It may not be something that we think about enough as a generation. In literature, there's um, that great picture of Macbeth, He's so racked with guilt for killing Duncan that he says all the water in the ocean couldn't wash him clean. Our motto as a generation, I think, is much more no regrets. We're so persuaded of our own innate goodness that we think we make the choices we do, we just own them. And so we, we downplay the depths of our sin problem. We would admit that we're not imperfect, but how many would admit that by nature I am impure and evil in God's sight? See if you can relate to C.S. Lewis. This is what he wrote when um, he says, for the first time he gave serious attention to what he was like on the inside as an adult. He said, I found what appalled me a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, and a harem of fondled hatreds. Swiss psychiatrist Paul Tournier described the contents of the human heart like this, complexes, secret imaginations, temptations, vain and unconfessable dreams, a whole world of impulses develop within us. They defy the censorship of our will. Why we can even have such horrible thoughts that it seems we could not bear the shame should they be revealed. But here is Jesus. He's saying to Israel, he's saying to us that through his death on the cross, we can be made spotlessly pure so pure that he'll look on our service of him as perfect righteousness, as pure as the finest silver or gold in the world, that you and I, despite all of our failings, will be able to live for him in such a way that we bring him genuine delight. And for if you've trusted in the Lord Jesus, God has done that work in you. 
He has purified you and made you clean. The second work of God is there in verse 5. I will draw near to you for judgment. I'll be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow, the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. This, it seems, the fate of those who don't come to the Lord for purification. The the alarming thing is how precisely that list of vices depicts what Israel was like in Malachi's day. Um, We've seen that uh, adultery was commonplace, injustice was everywhere, there was partiality, virtually no one feared the Lord, we've heard. And God says those behaviors aren't just problematic because of the pain they cause other human beings. They're not just problematic because they make you feel bad about yourself. They're a problem because I will judge them. And that's why this word of God is so unsettling. Because those who heard it first should have been thinking, hang on, verse 5 sounds a lot like me. Does that mean we're going to be judged too? But it seems that Israel had this choice. Um, Actually, there are two fires in Malachi. There's a refining fire of purification that we've just read about. And then in chapter 4, there's a blazing fire of judgment that will burn like an oven. And I think the choice facing Israel is, well, which fire do you want to experience? Fire of purification or of condemnation? Will you return to God now? Israel were being asked, will you admit your fault? Will you ask him to cleanse and purify you? Or are you going to persist in rejecting his love and telling him that he's the problem and face the consequences? Our world is left with a very similar choice. Jesus came the first time to purify, to save. He will come again, he tells us, to judge. And we all have to face him but we have that choice. Will I come to him now, encouraged by his love for me on the cross, and ask him to wash me clean? Or will I reject his love and face the consequences? Today is the day of patience and salvation. If you're still looking down at verses four and five, I think you could say we're living between verse four and verse five. Purification is available for all who turn to Jesus, but judgment is certain for all who won't. Which then will it be? We don't need to doubt his willingness to cleanse us. We can come to him as we are and know that he will wash us clean. It's a lovely moment in the Gospels when a leper approaches Jesus, and the way the story is told, it's clear that the That poor man's physical condition is a picture of a deeper spiritual problem that affects us all. And he falls at Jesus' feet and says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus replies, I am willing, be clean. And he reaches out and touches the man and makes him completely well. And that is what Jesus does for anyone who comes to him. Again, if you've come to him, humble and dependent and asked him to make you clean. He's done that work in you. 
And if you never have, but you did it today, then he would accept you and wash you spotlessly clean. It's the only way that we can be made ready for his coming. So if you are one of Jesus' followers, I hope your heart is singing with praise this morning for all that he has done for you, all that we could never have done for ourselves, but that he delighted to do. And I hope it leaves you wanting to live for him, to return to him daily with all of your heart. The Apostle Peter said to make every effort to add to your faith virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and love. So you don't just dabble with a God like this. You go all in when you see what he's done for you. Peter says, in this way you'll never fall, but there will be provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, we talk often about the problems in our world and we are reminded this morning that they are far deeper than we often realize and a lot closer to home. And so we want to praise you that the Lord Jesus came the first time to save, to purify, to forgive, to wash clean all who would trust in him. We want to thank you that many of us have uh, experienced that cleansing and we pray that you would help us to believe that it is true and so to live in the light of it that we would be secure in our status before you as those who are washed clean and perfect in your sight and for any who haven't yet trusted in the Lord Jesus we pray for your ongoing work in them ask that you would help them to see their need of you but above that help them to see the wonder of your grace and so to have their hearts captured by you. And we pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, we're going to end by singing two things. One about our wonderful, holy God.